want to encourage each of you to open your Bibles to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke this morning in our Christmas Believe series. And uh, take your outline out if you would. There's an outline in your bulletin. And I want to mention that last Sunday, a number of our people actually ran in the Honolulu Marathon. I didn't realize how many until I started just talking to people and finding out names of folks. And I thought, wow, that's, that's amazing. And uh, when I thought about it, I thought, you know, with that marathon, 26.2 miles, they all gathered down there by Aloha Tower in the pre-dawn darkness. And uh, we're waiting for the starting gun. Dee and I always hear it right here in Kaimuki. Bang! You know, about 5 in the morning. And I think at that point, they're all just filled with adrenaline, that adrenaline rush and excited and anticipating the race. But I also believe that every one of them, along the way, encountered some pain, right? And um, probably weren't surprised by that. It was a hot day, but a lot of them developed leg cramps. Pastor Cal ran it for the second year in a row. And he told me that it was all going well until he hit the 18-mile marker, and then his leg seized up. And he was so disappointed. He not only had physical pain, he had emotional pain. He said that uh, he, he'd been training for so long for this. He said, I felt like a prize fighter who'd been, you know, training for a match, and I got knocked out in the first round. He said, I felt like kind of a wimp. And I said, trust me, Cal, those of us that don't run the marathon, we would never call you or anybody else in that race a wimp for entering. He said, I thought about quitting at that point. Thought about calling Lydia and just, you know, bailing out. But no, he said, I pressed on through the pain and uh, an interesting thing happened. He said, I was no longer focused on my time in completing that race, but I was walking and I walked a good part of the remaining miles. And he said, I was able to talk to people and hear their stories and focus on them. He said, there was one soldier that came by me with a 75-pound pack on his back. And he said, uh, talking to him a little bit. And, and he said, then there was a, a mother and her son who was sitting on the curb. He said, I learned that she'd run 26 marathons before this, but her 10-year-old wanted to accompany her. So she said, sure. So now the 10-year-old, he's catching his breath and his feet are sore. And so she's encouraging him. And Cal said he could as well. And then he said there was this guy running along with a 100-pound barbell on his shoulder. That can't be good for your back, right? And he said, I talked to him and found out he's a vegan and wanted to prove he's just as tough as the carnivores. So, <laughs> but he said then he noticed some other people who were, uh, you know, people he knew, people from our church, and he could encourage them and cheer them on. He said his whole focus changed. He learned so much. And he found so much joy in that because of the pain that he'd endured. I thought, wow, that's a great metaphor. Because the Christian life is a race. It's a, ma it's a marathon for sure. Sometimes we enter this race and think we're going to make it without any pain. And we're surprised when the pain comes. But life happens and there is pain in life. And sometimes we're tempted to quit you know, bail out or take the easy route at that point. But if we'll press through the pain, we're going to find 
joy on the other side of that pain, we did not even realize. We'll learn some lessons through that pain that are invaluable to us here and in the hereafter. I think that uh, this figure in our story today teaches us that as well. The last couple of weeks when we've considered Joseph and Mary, we've talked about believe when life disappoints or believe when we feel irrelevant. Well, this morning I want us to consider this Christmas season and beyond to believe even when it's painful. And so we're going to look in Luke chapter 2 and the outline this morning is a long sentence for the most part, phrase by phrase, and uh, leads us to that conclusion. Here's the first phrase. When the Holy Spirit creates in us a hunger for deliverance, and here's the, the backdrop. Joseph and Mary have been in Bethlehem. Jesus is born. And then some days later, they come up to the temple. And actually, there are three rituals that need to be carried out according to the law. And uh, Luke just kind of puts them all together. But there's the ritual of, uh, of Mary's being purified. It happens after the birth of a child. Ceremonially, she needs to be cleansed. Secondly, this child would need to be circumcised on the eighth day. And third, they dedicate their child according to the law. Out of the time of the Passover, when, when Israel came up out of Egypt and there were ten plagues, that tenth plague took the child of every firstborn in all of Egypt except for in the homes of the Israelites because of the blood of the lamb that had been spliced on the doorposts the death angel passed over and that oldest was spared because of the sacrifice of that lamb and so whenever they would celebrate it afterwards uh, they would remember that and then when they would bring their child to the temple their firstborn they would redeem that firstborn. They would dedicate it to the Lord, but then they would bring a sacrifice and in essence redeem their child uh, to live with them. When Hannah brought Samuel, she left Samuel in the temple, but most of them would bring their child back. Well, that was what was happening. And when they came into those temple courts on Temple Mount, they had a fascinating encounter. And we pick it up in verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, the comfort or the deliverance, the relief of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Notice that it says the Holy Spirit was upon him, not within him, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't dwell within people. If you look, you'll see that the Holy Spirit came upon people for a period of time, during the time when that task needed to be conducted, whether it was a king or a prophet or a priest, here, Simeon. And you say, wait a minute, Simeon's in the New Testament. Not really. Even though he's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, which is in the New Testament, the New Covenant or the New Testament did not go into effect until the cross of Jesus Christ. So he was living under the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit would come upon him and then would leave, but the Holy Spirit would come upon the church when? Day of Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2. And from that point forward, every believer would have the privilege of having the Holy Spirit within to empower and to guide and to comfort and to teach. But here, the Holy Spirit rests upon Simeon. And in verse 26, we read, 
It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon, a righteous and devout man, hungered for God's deliverance. Palestine was occupied territory. Rome was uh, just oppressing the peoples of this nation. And he was longing for the promise of this one that would come and deliver them. He was hungering for it. Jesus would later say, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Not by their own righteousness, but by his righteousness, which is imputed to us when we believe. Well, Simeon was hungering and thirsting for a deliverance. And so, back to our outline, when the Holy Spirit creates in us a hunger for deliverance, an encounter with the Savior brings the overwhelming joy of salvation. Some of you remember that, by the way. In fact, I would say every follower of Jesus here does. You remember the joy of salvation when you encountered Christ? It might have been weeks ago, months ago, years, decades ago. But you remember the joy of knowing your sins were forgiven. That you now have the promise of heaven. That you have a relationship with God. Who Maybe you have feared before that. Maybe some of you are still longing for that relationship with God. Well, when you find Jesus, you find that joy of salvation. That's what happens here, verse 27. And he came in the spirit, Simeon, to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. There have been many paintings of this encounter. I love this one here. And you can see uh, the parents, the baby Jesus, and there's Simeon. Back in the background, that's Anna the prophetess, who we won't get into this morning, but it follows in this passage. But I looked at that and I thought, wow, they really had to trust Simeon. They wouldn't have met him in all probability. They weren't even from around there. But here they go into the temple courts and he reaches out to take the child. They hand the baby Jesus over to him. As far as I can tell, Baby Jesus is calm and quiet. Whenever I take a baby in my arms or on the Lanaya toddler, they're often crying, trying to get back to their mother, but not here. But anyway, Simeon, he is blessed because he realizes what is happening here. He says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, in the New American Standard, when it's in capital letters, that means it's a quote from the Old Testament. And he was quoting Isaiah, the prophet, as he was speaking how this child would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now, that'd be news to many Jewish people in that day because they thought God had written off the Gentiles no, no, no. He was going to use the nation of Israel, and when the nation wouldn't shine the light, he'd bring the Messiah into the world to be light to the whole world. And it would be for the glory of Israel, because it would be through this nation that this Messiah would come. Well, Simeon's overcome with joy, and there's another painting which I really love showing this encounter, which shows Simeon and just holding this child and experiencing just all the overwhelming joy of, of what's happening here. 
However, somewhere in this moment, I believe God gives Simeon a vision of the future, a revelation, a startling revelation that uh, probably stopped him short. And continuing in our outline, we read, when the Holy Spirit creates in us a hunger for deliverance, an encounter with the Savior brings the overwhelming joy of salvation, followed by the realization there is pain in the deliverance. That's what Simeon saw, I believe, in this moment as he was holding Jesus. Because as we read on, it says, And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many will or may be revealed. Now Joseph and Mary are caught up in the words of Simeon and probably thrilled by what he's saying about this child whom they knew was no ordinary child, born to a virgin, with all the prophecies surrounding him. But then Simon says he's appointed for the fall and rise of many, and they could have understood that. Yes, the fall of the proud and the rich and the rulers who were oppressing them, even some of their own rulers, the rise of the poor and the humble and the outcasts. That's great. But then he said, a sign to be opposed. This child is going to be a sign to be opposed. And I think that would have immediately struck her heart. And he then looked at her and said, and a sword will pierce your very own soul. Wow. How do you suppose she received those words? What would that have meant to her? Well, when she would have considered that this child would be a sign to be opposed, she knew there'd be real hardship in his life. He wasn't going to be just received as the glorious Messiah by all of the nation. And I think that broke her heart right there. I mean, we know as parents, even when our children are very small, if they're struggling with an illness that's just so hurtful to us. Or when they enter elementary school, maybe a child's being bullied and we feel like we can't even do anything about it. That's just heartrending. Or maybe when we have adult children and maybe they're struggling in their work or their vocation or trying to get a job or struggling financially or in their marriage, we feel helpless and it hurts us as parents. So we can identify a little bit with Mary here and just from this point, what she's feeling about this child who will be assigned to be opposed. Well, Simeon seemed to be the only person there that grasped that the meaning of God's plan, which had been set in motion, would include pain. We often want to avoid thinking about that aspect of his coming. Interestingly, we sang a song this morning, Here in this manger lies the one who created the starry skies. This baby born for sacrifice, Christ the Messiah. When a Jesuit missionary by the name of Matteo Ricci went to China in the 16th century, he took along with him some art forms because he felt he could communicate the gospel with 
pictures, more so even than words, to these who had not heard of the Messiah, of the Savior. And so he pulls out, as he's telling the story, these pictures of the Virgin Mary and the child. The people loved it. They just thought that was beautiful, and they adored the mother and the child. But as the story continued, and then he later pulled out pictures of this God child who grew up to be crucified, they were horrified and repulsed by that. They couldn't believe that he'd grown up to be executed, and so they preferred, no, we want to stay with the mother and child. We want to worship this one. And I think there's a tendency in all of us to kind of be like that. Some streams of Christianity certainly put a whole lot more emphasis on the Virgin Mary and the child. And even in our own Christmas cards during this season, I mean, thumb through them and there's just uh, scenes that are so passive and pastel and like pictures of, of snowfall and birds chirping in the trees and manger scenes. Not too many are going to have a cross. And that's okay. We celebrate his coming. But it's always, have, we have to remember, the cross was in view because that was the purpose for his coming. Simeon began to see that right then. And when we come to Christ, and there's the joy of salvation, and then the pain comes because we realize, wow, there's a cost to following Jesus. Maybe my friends are rejecting me. Maybe uh, I've been asked to give this up or to turn to this or to sacrifice in this way. Sometimes we're surprised by that. I thought salvation was free. And it is. But discipleship is not free. There's a cost to discipleship. And that's what we need to learn. There was a church sign I saw on the internet this last week that I think kind of captures that. This uh, sign outside of a church building said evenings at 7 in the parish hall, that would be like our fellowship hall, Monday Alcoholics Anonymous, Tuesday Abused Spouses, Wednesday Eating Disorders, Thursday Say No to Drugs, Friday Teen Suicide Watch, Saturday Soup Kitchen, but Sunday we're going to preach on America's Joyous Future. A little bit of irony involved in that. And I haven't wrapped my mind clear around that whole thing. But sometimes we deny that there is that tension. And in fact, uh, the people that are participating in those evenings, that are coming for recovery or for, to help other people or to be helped themselves, they're realizing, yes, there's pain and you can deny it or you can deal with it. And if we'll acknowledge it and press through that pain, we can have a joyous future beyond, and so can our nation, if we'll collectively do that. Philip Yancey, I think one of the great writers, Christian writers of our time, written a lot of wonderful books. One of them is called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It's about the human body, and specifically, he talks about uh, his time with Dr. Paul Brand. Dr. Paul Brand was a missionary, to, missionary doctor to India for decades. He was working in a leper colony there. And then he spent time in, in Carville, Louisiana as well, in a leper colony. And so Yancey became a good friend of his, and he learned a lot. And he wrote this book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And one of the things he said he realized is that 
pain is one of the great gifts that God has given to us. Though we recoil at it, we don't want anything to do with it, it's a great gift. He said, for instance, among those with leprosy, one of the difficulties is that they can't feel pain in their extremities. And because of that, uh, they may be burned and it doesn't, they don't even notice it. They may have something wearing at a part of their foot and they're not even aware of it. They just continue to walk until it becomes sore and infected and they may lose a foot or other extremities that way because they can't feel pain. But pain notifies us a change needs to be made. And so that's what happens when we encounter change in our following Christ. We realize this needs to be submitted to the Lord. I need his help in this. I need to turn to him in this. And we grow and we learn through pain if we decide to press through it. Yancey said this in his book, Where is God When It Hurts? We are not put on earth merely to satisfy our desires, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. We are here to be changed, to be made more like God in order to prepare us for a lifetime with him. And that process may be served by the mysterious pattern of all creation. Pleasure sometimes emerges against a background of pain. Evil may be transformed into good, and suffering may produce something of value. Comes through pain. He said that pain and pleasure are often found very close together, inextricably tied together. There's another book that was written called Unchristian many years ago by Gabe Lyons. And he talks about why in our culture many young people, the younger generation, are rejecting Christianity. He followed that up with another book called The Next Christians. And he kind of elaborated on that. And, and, and here's what he said. He said a lot of the younger generation believe that... Um, Christians are judgmental and they're hypocritical and they are have a holier-than-thou attitude. And a lot of the younger generation, any Christians they do know, they don't see any difference in their lives than they themselves have. He said this became clear to him, the author, Gabe Lyons, when several years ago after The Passion of the Christ, that movie that was a blockbuster, came out by Mel Gibson, and he was asked to come to Hollywood to speak to a producer out there and explain to her how to reach the Christian market because they saw all of a sudden there's a lucrative market for Christian movies. So he said he, he met with Haley and she asked him, well, how do Christians relate to culture? How do they relate to their culture? And he said, I began to explain it to her and I realized this is not easy because... The Christian faith in America is not a monolith. I mean, it is a spectrum of all kinds of different attitudes and beliefs and such. So he painted a picture and he actually drew a chart in his second book, which has all kinds of different things. But for simplicity this morning, I want to just reduce it to about a, a two or three. He said, many Christians in our culture are separatists. They've kind of withdrawn from culture. They may... Uh, they attend church, they maybe go to Bible studies, they'll send their kids only to a Christian school, 
They'll only go to Christian bookstores, send their kids to Christian camps, enroll them in, in themselves in church leagues for sports because it's a safe place to be. We don't want to be contaminated by the unbelievers. And uh, there's a kind of a, an attitude that can develop holier than thou. It's certainly perceived as such by outsiders, separatists, okay? On the other hand, he said there are the blenders. And the blenders are those that fit in. And um, the unbelievers around them wouldn't even know that they have any beliefs that are different because any critical issue that comes up in our culture that is at odds with scripture, these folks will kind of adapt to that. Churches will do the same sometimes, as well as Christians, and they'll just go along with that, uh, the beliefs of culture and the behaviors of those who are unchristian, not Christian. And so he said, no difference there. So there's no real message that these folks have. He said that uh, there's nothing new there because that happened in Jesus' day as well. Same groups, different names. In Jesus' day, they're the separatists. Some really separated the Essenes. They withdrew to their own community down by the Dead Sea. We've been there on our Holy Land trips down at Qumran. And they lived in caves down there. And, and uh, they had their own little culture down there apart from sinners and even their own people who they felt like had compromised but in addition to the Essenes, there were the Pharisees. And that meant to separate. They had all their rules and everything that they had added to Scripture. And they conducted themselves according to those rules. And they looked down upon other people who didn't adhere to their rules. They were judgmental and separated from society in general. Separatists. On the other hand, in Jesus' day, there were blenders as well. The Herodians who had accepted the politics and all that went along with Herod's reign in, in Palestine, and the Sadducees, who were the liberals of Jesus' day. They had given up uh, belief in the power of God, the miracles of God. They didn't believe in the resurrection any longer. They were the ruling class among the Jews, and they had the power. And so these were the ones that had blended into their culture and just gone for what the culture valued. But Jesus had scathing words for both groups, for the separatists and the blenders of his day. Boy, you read the Gospels. He takes them both on. And he modeled a different way. And that is to be a restorer, to come alongside people, to rub elbows with everyone in that culture. And whether it be the rich young ruler, the leper, the woman caught in adultery, uh, any of them, he came alongside them and he loved them. And he refused to compromise. He spoke truth without condemning. But he had to be alongside of them to do so. And you know what? That's not easy. If we attempt to do that, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's just easier just to avoid those that think differently or or believe differently or act differently than us and just keep our distance. Or just fit in. Just go along to get along and uh, maybe they won't notice we're any different. And it can be painful just to love 
people around us that we work with, that we live around, that are in our family, that are different than us in their beliefs and behavior, but genuinely love them. And yet, as we have opportunity, share the hope that is within us and the truth of the gospel that Christ has given to us. Painful, but that's the way of a disciple. And here's the thing. Jesus said that when he calls us, there's a cost. Bottom of your outline, it says, disciples believe knowing there's a price to pay. That's the cost of discipleship. Sometimes it'll cost us time to hang around with unbelievers, won't it? When we, maybe we want to do something else. It'll cost us resources to extend ourselves to those around us. It's, it's a sacrifice. It's costly. But that's what disciples are into. To be humble, caring, connected, accepting, and truthful. Jesus one time went into the home of a religious man, a Pharisee. He dined with him, and then he told some stories, parables. And then when he concluded those stories in Luke chapter 14, he said this, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That was a startling statement. He hadn't been to the cross yet. They didn't know anything about that. But they knew about crosses. They knew the Romans were executing people continually, criminals, on crosses. And he's saying, you've got to pick up a cross and follow me. A cross to them in that culture meant death. So what Jesus was saying is that anyone that wants to follow him has to die. Die to ourselves. And our first interests and our uh, just primary concerns about ourselves so that we can begin to follow him and reach out to others. That's sacrificial. And that's what his death on the cross was all about. Like someone running a marathon who then begins not to focus on himself but those around him. Running this race, if we deny ourselves, pick up our cross, we're making a sacrifice to die to self and live for him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Because he saw what was on the other side of the pain. The joy of claiming us as his brothers and sisters. Another quote from Yancey, he said, Everywhere a greater joy is preceded by a greater suffering. So when we have pain in this Christmas season or beyond, pain isn't the end. It's part of the process and can lead us to even greater joy. So let's return to that last point again. Disciples believe, knowing there's a price to pay, and here's what's not written in your bulletin, in your outline. They know there's a price to pay, but they know there's a price to gain. Don't miss that. There's a price to pay for following Christ, but there's a price to be gained. And that is the joy of growing to maturity in Christ, of coming to completeness. That's what that runner sees is the finish line, and we need to see it as well. That there will be a day when he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And along the way, 
we'll have the joy of knowing we are disciples. We are following him. The Apostle Paul understood that. And he said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Well, we're not competing against one another. In this race, we can all win the prize. And that is his his blessing upon us in the race and at the end of the race. And so when the pain comes, when we're called to love our enemies, pray for those who per persecute us, to forgive those who've hurt and betrayed us, when we're called to go the extra mile that Jesus calls us to go, we can shrink back. We can decide, I'm not running this race. Or we can lean into the pain and follow Jesus embracing that pain because of the joy that we know he's promised is on the other side of it. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful this morning for your willingness to accept suffering beyond our comprehension that we might escape it, that we might be set free. Lord, you've called us and honored us by calling us to walk with you and to follow you it's challenging sometimes it's really difficult and I know there are so many stories happening right here this morning different circumstances in people's lives some by our own causing some from someone else but it's life so I'd pray that each of us would hear what you have to say to us about what it means to embrace the pain to trust you in it to look beyond it to what you have in store for us and the lessons that we can learn through it. And I would also pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know yet this joy of encountering you, this joy of salvation, the joy of forgiveness, that this would be the day, this would be the season. Cheer, he would say, yes, Jesus, I believe. I receive you as my Savior and I want to follow you as my Lord. Help us to do so, Lord. I pray in your name. Amen.